Christmas series of sermons. And I would normally agree with you if my wife hadn't recently taken 23andMe. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it was interesting, the 23andMe that my wife took, um, coming out of that was uh, she learned about her physical DNA and how she's related to all these different people. And, you know, they do a medical makeup and, and all of this stuff. And she, she's learning so much about herself. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to look at the spiritual DNA of Jesus through Ruth? Because if you read through the book of Ruth, there are so many themes in the book of Ruth that you actually find in the Christmas story. Themes of love and grace and covenant faithfulness, the theme of kinsman, redeemer. I could go on and on. In fact, why don't you, uh, when you go home and you leave here, read through the book of Ruth and you will see all of these connections um, that are being made. Um, in fact, it would be a great uh, Christmas um, study for you and your family if you were to do that. So that's what we're going to do. Every week, we're going to take a theme in the book of Ruth and show how it is connected to the Christmas theme and through Christ in a very powerful way. So this morning, we're going to begin with the theme of love, the theme of love. Now, as I read Ruth chapter 1, I want you to pick up of, of the various ways on how this theme uh, comes out, and I'll try to do my best uh, to present it to you today. Ruth chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were uh, Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. 
for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpher kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your daughter-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, this is your word. And these are your people. Commend your word to their hearts. Give them a profound love and a deep desire for your word and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, it's often customary in various cultures uh, to mark important sites with stones, huge stones. For example, when the children of Israel finally entered the promised land, one of the first things they did was pick 12 stones and put it at the spot in which they entered the promised land. And it was a way for them to be reminded of how significant this moment was. Well, in many ways, I, fell, I feel that a whole bunch of stones should, be, should have been put into, on the road that led from Moab all the way to Bethlehem. Because it's on that road, one of the most remarkable scenes in all of Scripture happens. And it takes place in verse 6 through 18. You have this beautiful expression of uh, Ruth's love to Naomi. It's a powerful, powerful expression of love and devotion. And even more than that, that love foreshadows the love 
that Jesus Christ would have for his people. And so with the time that I have remaining, I want us to look at this profound love. And I want us to begin by looking at the bitterness of Naomi. And this is important because it serves as a great contrast. And then, of course, Ruth's love for Naomi. And then finally, I'll end with how this relates to the Christmas story. So first of all, the bitterness of Naomi. You know, if we were Israelites during this time, our theology would actually be formed by two sets of verses in the Bible. Now, you have your own theology, certain verses that you hold dear, that you tend to carry all through your life, and they serve as an important tool in your life, an important didactic tool in your life. Well, the same thing was true for Naomi. There were two verses that formed the meat and potatoes of her theology and how she looked at the world. And here are the two verses. The first is the Aaronic blessing from Numbers 6, 23 through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. It's the Lord's blessing. That formed her theology. Then there's another set of verses that formed her theology, and it's known as the Shema, Deuteronomy 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This formed her theology that God would always bless her. And the second one, is that she should love the Lord your God with all her heart, mind, and soul. Well, there's a problem, and the problem is there's nothing in Naomi's experience over the last 10 years that would make any one of those verses real to her. Naomi spent the last 10 years in utter misery. In fact, this is borne out by the way she describes her life. Look at verse number 20 and 21. In fact, when she comes back to Bethlehem, the women ask uh, themselves the question, is this Naomi? Now, here's the deal. These women were not politically correct. You know, if they lived in our day, they would say, my Naomi, you look a little bit different. Uh, that's not what the, those, uh, this question means. Is this Naomi? In a sense, they were looking at her and saying, my goodness, you have not aged well. You look like you've been to hell and back. You look awful. What the heck happened to you down in Moab? These women were not politically correct. They asked the question because it was written all over her face. You've just went through the worst experience a human being could possibly go through. Have you ever met someone like that? You don't even need to know the backstory. You could just look on their face and it looks like they've been ran over by a Mack truck, an emotional Mack truck, a spiritual Mack truck, and then somebody stopped the Mack truck and rolled it back. That's what that verse, these verses indicate. And what does Naomi say? You know, I love the rawness of this text because she doesn't pretend. You know, she could have said, oh, no, it's fine. You know, I had a little trouble, but God bless. You know, I'm too blessed to be stressed. That's not what she said. 
right? Eh, some of us do that. You know, we've been going through hard times, and we don't want people to know. And so we, we say Christianese. You know, I'm doing okay. I'll be fine. I'm fine. You're fine. The world's fine. But you know what? Naomi didn't say the world's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. No, she confirmed exactly what they were saying. She looked at them and said, do not call me Naomi, meaning do not call me Pleasant. That's what her name meant, Naomi, Pleasant. She said, don't call me Pleasant. Instead, I want you to call me Mara, meaning bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You could spend an entire year studying the book of Ruth and that statement, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Because it's true. Now, sometimes you hear people talk about their lives and, you know, you say inwardly, you would never say this to them outwardly, but you would say inwardly, eh, things are not that bad. You're being a little bit melodramatic. But there was nothing melodramatic about that statement from Naomi. Her life was as bad as she looked. Well, notice with me in verse number one, here are the facts about her life. The first is that she lived in the times of the judges, Ruth 1.1. What does that mean? What is the significance? Well, she lived in a time of complete moral chaos. There was no king to keep the people morally straight and aligned. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Number two, she lived during a time of tremendous economic chaos. Notice it says in verse number one that there was a famine in the land. Well, also, she was forced to live as a stranger in a foreign land. They traveled down to Moab. I want you to read exile here. And also, she lost every member of her family. You see that in verse number five. And to make matters worse, as she's on this faithful robe going back to Bethlehem, she reminds her uh, daughter-in-laws that she's an old woman who can't have any more children. And in a sense, she's saying that her life is completely over. Carolyn James, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Jonah, uh, sorry, on the book of Ruth, said this, that annihilation was a faith the ancients feared the most. Annihilation. Well, if that is the case, and I believe it is, then... Naomi's worst fear was realized. She lost everything. And in fact, Yahweh, to some degree, had annihilated her. And as a result of her being annihilated in her mind, everything's taken away from her. She has no family. She has no prospects. She is poor. She's a widow. She can't provide for herself. She does what any self-respecting human being would do. She goes into an existential crisis. Have you ever been in an existential crisis? It happened to me in my late 30s. You know, in my late 30s, I look back in my life and I said, wow, look at what all I've been through. Look at all what have happened. And uh, I've probably lived more of my life than I have ahead of me. And I went into a panic. 
yeah, men typically go through it. They call it a midlife crisis, and we buy, um, you know, we buy a new home or we buy a motorcycle. I was too poor to buy any of that stuff. And so I just freaked out. It's cheaper. <laughs> and, you know, uh, maybe, you know, one can argue that uh, the, the psychology bills or the psychiatrist bills aren't cheaper, but I just found a godly person in my church and just told him everything that was in my heart. And that worked well. That worked well. And so Naomi was going through a good old-fashioned existential crisis. Why? Because Yahweh was supposed to bless her. That's what Yahweh does. And Yahweh is supposed to love her. And it didn't feel like Yahweh was doing that. In fact, the exact opposite. Yahweh deliberately turned this pleasant woman into a bitter woman. Why would Yahweh do that? What kind of love is that? You know, those were the facts of Naomi's life. I wish that Naomi, to some degree, considered another important fact in her life. And it's this. If an infinite, holy, good God has taken the time to interfere in her normal, mundane life, don't you think that he's doing it for good and holy ends? Have you ever sat back and looked at your life? I know. I, I'm kind of weird. I do it a lot. Kind of look at my life a lot. And I often say to myself, you know, my life is pretty mundane. You know, I get up in the morning, and I have my time of worship, and I, maybe if I'm home, I cook breakfast for my children. And, you know, I go to work, and I pay the bills, and, and it's rinse and repeat. You know, I brush my teeth and take a bath, and I do very mundane, ordinary things. And there are times when I stop and I wonder, God, are you in the midst of all of this? Because my life seems pretty ordinary. According to the facts, I'll be forgotten in four generations after I die. And, you know, the way my life is going, nobody is going to write books about me. And I'm not going to end up in the history books. And look, look, that's okay. I'm not complaining. But there are times in our lives when we look around and we say, you know what, I'm pretty ordinary. And, and when you realize you've come to the place, now not all of you are ordinary. Maybe some of you will end up in history books. Maybe some of you will have some notoriety. So I don't want to cast that on all of you. But the point is, when we look at our lives, we see ordinary. And we think to ourselves, is Yahweh doing anything in our lives? Does Yahweh want to do anything in our lives? Where is Yahweh in our lives? And to compound the ordinariness of our life, there is misery and pain. And we ask ourselves, what kind of love is this? Well, you know, here's one fascinating thing about Scripture. If you've read it a bunch, and I know some of you have, and some of you, you probably need to, because then you'll realize a glorious truth. And here's the glorious truth. Yahweh loves to work in the ordinary. He loves to work in the ordinary. He loves to work in the mundane. He loves to take, you know, little boys who are the youngest in their family on the side of a hill somewhere playing a foolish harp 
wondering why he's been forgotten by every member of his family. And some old dude shows up, takes some oil and pours it over him and tells him, you're going to be the next king of Israel. You know, God tends to work in the ordinary and in the mundane. And you might say, well, pastor, what about all the evil and all the mess that happens in my life? My life is full of a bunch of awfulness. What about that? Well, I like to call those things holy prunings. Holy prunings. You might be like, well, pastor, what are you talking about? I remember several months ago, somebody told me the ugliest trees in the world are fruit trees. And I said, really? And he's like, oh, yeah, especially apple trees. So I said, huh, that's interesting. So I put that little bit of factoid in the back of my head. And that little piece of factoid came alive when me and my family visited an orchid uh, field a few months ago. And you know what I realized? They were right. Apple trees look awful. In fact, I, it felt like I was walking through the tails of the crypt. I mean, every time I turned around, it was these awful mangled trees everywhere. Well, what's happening there? Well, they had to prune them so they can grow more fruit. And maybe you should stop looking at the disasters in your life or the hardships in your life as just Yahweh being mean to you or unkind to you or turning you bitter and start looking at it as a little bit of holy pruning. What Naomi interpreted as the Lord dealing with her bitterly was just that. You see, the Lord had to bring her into Moab so she can meet Ruth. And the Lord had to take away her family so she can have a royal family. But you see, Ruth didn't know that at the time. Um, and Naomi didn't know that at the time. Nobody knows that at the time. And here's another little factoid about life. You never really see what Yahweh is doing. You never really see it. And in fact, for most of us, we just look at God and we say, God is being unkind. But, but if you can look into the future, you'll see he's doing some pretty extraordinary things. You know, I might never live to see the extraordinary things that Yahweh will do as the result of maybe a house call or, or me giving up some money to someone on the side of the road or me investing time in my children and me loving my wife and me paying my bills. Maybe I'll never end up seeing the full fruit of that. But you know, the good thing about Scripture is I don't have to. And you don't have to. You don't have to see how God's going to use you. All you have to know is that Yahweh is at work pruning you, holy pruning. And that pruning changes you. Now let me ask you a question. How is Yahweh pruning you? How is Yahweh pruning you? You know, Yahweh tends to prune in predictable ways. For instance, Right? If you struggle with pride, he comes and prunes you by ordained failure, and it humbles you. And if you struggle with controlling, you know, you're a controlling individual. You need to have things exactly a particular way. Well, Yahweh has the unique ability of sending ordained chaos. 
Capronius. Or you might be self-righteous, and then Yahweh prunes you by sending you into a situation where you stand in need of grace. His pruning is predictable, but it's also sure. And his pruning is always designed to bring forth precious fruit. And you know, there is a fruit that was born from Naomi. And it's hard to see because it's an argument from silence, but it's still true. What is the fruit that came from Naomi in this text in the immediate? Here's the fruit. Despite all that's happened to her, what's the one thing Naomi doesn't do? She doesn't deny Yahweh. Read the text. She tells that Yahweh has dealt bitterly with her. She complains about her estate, but never once did she curse God and die. No. No, she was faithful to Yahweh. She remained faithful to Yahweh. Now, you say, Pastor Dennis, you spent 17 minutes talking about the bitterness of Naomi. Why? Because the way Hebrew poetry and Hebrew narrative works is that there is a contrast lurking. And the reason why I spent so much time talking about the bitterness of Naomi is because the bitterness of Naomi is contrasted against the wonderful and shocking response of Ruth to that bitterness. And it's found in verse number 14, especially at the end. It said that Ruth clung to her. That's a sign of love. In fact, that's the same word used in Genesis 2 to describe the leaving and cleaving that's supposed to happen between a husband and a wife. She clung to her as a sign of covenant love to her. Ruth clung to Naomi even though she was bitter. Now let me say this. Most of us are not equipped to deal with someone as damaged as Naomi is in this text. You know, if you sat in front of someone who has just lost everything, and I'm not, I'm not even talking about money. Have you ever sat in front of someone that has lost everything? Have you ever listened to someone who's lost everything? I had a friend recently called me. And um, he cried more than he actually spoke. Because um, he uh, didn't treat his wife properly. And here's a pro tip, men, perspective, husbands. That's what would happen if you don't treat your wife properly. Love your wife. Care for them well. Serve them. But he didn't. He didn't. And for a while he played the fool. And um, she did what she was supposed to do. You don't stay in abusive situations for the glory of God especially if it's real abuse, like, you know, and it was. So she left him, and he called me, and he was crying. And I said to him, I said, brother, I love you, but you acted the fool. You knew better than to treat your wife so poorly. And you have to figure out a way to fix it. You have to figure out a way to make it right. But in that moment, he had lost everything. 
and he was uncontrollable. Have you been in front of somebody who's lost everything? You realize very quickly you're not as equipped as you think you are to deal with someone like that. I realized in that moment that probably I wasn't the most equipped person to deal with it. So how do you deal with someone who is bitter and who's lost everything? Uh, You know, in many ways, I wish I had read Ruth years ago. At least the way I read it just recently. I realized the way you deal with someone that's hurting is to simply cling to them. Simply cling to them. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to solve every problem. You don't have to say something that's profound or weighty. No, 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 no. Perhaps the greatest thing you can do for that person is simply cling to them. And that's what she did. What's astounding to me is that she clung to them, to Naomi, even though Naomi didn't want to be clung to. That comes through the text. Read verse 6 down to verse number 14 and follow all the verbs that say return. Follow all the verbs that say return. Naomi was putting on a full court press to have Ruth go back to Moab. In verse number 8, she looks at them and she says, go return to your mother's house. Go return to your family. And may the Lord bless you. And may the Lord give you a husband and raise up seed to you. But in verse number 10, they said no. And then in verse number 11, she says again, turn back, my daughters. Then in verse number 12, turn back, my daughters. Over and over again, she says, don't cling to me. I offer no hope to you. Do not cling to me. I offer no resolution for you. I can't have any more children. I can't provide you any home. I can't do anything for you. Don't cling to me. And yet, Ruth didn't listen. She clung to her anyway in the midst of her bitterness. Now, let me pause here and say this. Don't give Orpah a hard time. You know, you read this text and you say, ah, look at Orpah. Like she's just leaving back. She's just leaving and going back to her own people. What is she doing? Now, uh, hear, hear me. Remember I told you about contrast? There's a lot of that in Hebrew literature. See, the author is setting up a contrast. See, Orpah did the sensible thing. That's what you're supposed to do. She had no hope, no future in Bethlehem. Why would she go? Well, it's a good question. So she did the sensible thing. She went back to her homeland. Now, the contrast here is that Ruth did the uncommon thing. Some would even say the foolish thing. Why is it foolish? Well, for one thing, she was a Moabite going to Bethlehem. The racial animus was fixed. And her safety was on the line. In fact, it's summed up well by Boaz when he told Ruth, Have I not commanded my servants not to touch you? Why would he command that? Because her physical safety was in danger. 
Not only that, but she had no family in Bethlehem. Who would care for her? And not only that, word would certainly get out that she couldn't conceive any children. She was damaged goods. And yet she clung to her. And even more than that, notice verse 15 through 18. Not only does she physically proclaim her love for Naomi, but she proclaimed it audibly. She says to her, I will not return back. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. And notice how with every line there's an intensification. For where you go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. And then she ends with a malediction on herself. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Well, that's what the text says. That's the power of love. When someone expresses their love toward you so powerfully, you know they're not messing around. You know, C.S. Lewis um, once said that God whispers in our pleasures but screams in our suffering. And you know, if that is the case, then Ruth was a huge megaphone for Yahweh. Because as Ruth is saying these words, verse 15 down through verse 17 to Naomi, you could almost hear Yahweh's voice talking to her and saying, I haven't dealt bitterly with you. I haven't annihilated you. I haven't left you without a family. I haven't left you without someone to love you. I gave you Ruth. I gave you Ruth. You haven't come back empty. You've come back with a chosen vessel. And her name is Ruth. Now, Real brief, how does this relate to the Christmas story? Well, if you've been paying attention, you can see. Ruth suffered alongside Naomi in, order, in her darkest hour, and that gave her hope. Ruth clung to Naomi even though she was bitter. Ruth was willing to leave her homeland so that she can enter into Naomi's world and be a blessing to her. Ruth was willing to become poor so that Naomi can become rich. Ruth was willing to lay down her life for Naomi so that she can be saved. Have you gotten it yet? Because that describes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus suffers alongside of us in our darkest moments to give us hope. That Jesus clings to us even though we are often bitter. That Jesus was willing to leave his homeland so that he can enter into our world. The Bible says, tabernacled with us to be a blessing to us. Jesus was willing to become poor so that we might become rich. Jesus was willing to lay down his life so that we can be saved. Yes, the gospel and Christmas is all over Ruth. Now, 
what's the big takeaway? I always have to leave one. So here's the big takeaway. Find someone you can cling to. And I would say find someone who's willing to cling to you. You know, the reality is that we need one another. And if there's one thing that the book of Ruth shows us is that without one another, we would be hopelessly lost. And so this Christmas, you want to share the love of Christ? First of all, find someone you can cling to. And then let someone cling to you. Let someone be a blessing to you. Uh, Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, what a powerful story. And uh, it's a powerful story because it's your story. It's a powerful story because in it, we see your redemptive purposes loud and clear. Help us as your people to be a source of light. Help us as your people to cling to those that are bitter. And Lord, if we're bitter, help us to allow others to cling to us, that we might find friendship and hope and blessing. I pray that for our people. Lord, I pray that for myself. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.